Okay, you know the deal. This is the podcast, the skate park podcast. The official, I always say this is the official podcast of Breaking Free Skate Park as if there were unofficial ones, but that doesn't exist. So. Official podcast yeah. of Breaking Free Skate Park. Uh, so this is a different setup, obviously. I have the camera set up on auto exposure because the sun's coming and going. Right. It, it kind of is what it is. This is kind of an experiment. Yeah. I forgot the one chord, so I don't have my push buttons for the intro song. So it is what it is. We'll vibe with it. But to, uh, today, obviously, there's someone else here. This is, why don't you just introduce yourself? Howdy. Uh, my name is Matt Wolf. I've uh, been riding bikes for probably about nine years, and I've been living in Rochester for about 12. Okay. Good enough. Cool. <laughs> Love it. Short and sweet. We're going to do three sections today. We're going to do the normal one, housekeeping. We're going to go over basic, uh, some of this, what uh, Corona stuff means for the skate park. Then we're going to jump into talking about BMX and mountain biking. Uh, so that's kind of exciting. And if anyone wants to do the same for skateboarding one day, just slide in the DMs and we could do that. Hopefully the people riding in the background isn't too annoying. If it so, is, we can yell mean things to them. Yeah, right? Yeah, right. Whatever. So... If you have any questions, you could jump in. We'll do. Uh, so basically, skate park's been closed. Uh, it's mid-April now. It's the 16th. Uh, we closed on the 16th, uh, and they said today that everything will continue to be closed to at least May 15th. So we're talking about two months of closure. Right. That's right. We're cl- not not emotional closure. Right. Right. Closure. Insert like 80s love song right yes. now. Uh, if I had the buttons, I have the, um, I want to know what love is button, so, but I don't have it. We'll clean that up in post. So I just wanted to try to briefly explain uh, what these government programs mean for the skate park. Because the, in the vlogs, I'm not going to like sit there and talk for 20 minutes. I'm hopefully not going to do that 20 minutes here either. I want to give you an overview. Uh, yes, yeah, so the CARES package, CARES Act, they gave a boatload of money to give away. Uh, it hasn't been implemented super well. It's frustrating is a nice way of putting it. They offered two plans. The one plan is the PPP, the Payroll Protection Program. The second plan or program was the EIDL. It's a was it emergency injury disaster loan. The way it was phrased, uh, you know, when I first looked at it, this is in March still. It actually specifically mentions businesses like this, like amusements and recreation that are going to be hit hard, that this would be the route to take. So that was, in fact, the route I took. Right. Um, so I applied on the 30th. I didn't hear anything until a few days ago. So we're talking two weeks. Um, the initial, what they said for the EIDL was you would get a $10,000 grant. Uh, that is a grant. You just get that money. Whether you get the loan or get denied for the loan, you get the grant. In fact, you had to put your routing number and account number on the application, and they said in as little as three days, you'll get that money just deposited to you so you don't get slammed by this whole situation. Didn't, that didn't happen. I said it's been like two weeks. Um, I uh, finally got an email, and it was not specific to my, my uh, application. It was just a general one, and it said uh, due to the high demand, they're no longer doing that grant. Uh, they're now willing to give you $1,000 per employee. They don't, they don't specify whether that's full-time, part-time, what, but for me, basically, that means at a minimum, I can get 1000 bucks. At a maximum, I can get 
Uh, 3,000, assuming that Clark working, you know, eight hours a week counts as an employee, which we don't know. So when I got that email, I was like, great. Well, so now here I am, you know, nearly three weeks later, I need to go for the PPP program instead of the EIDL. So now I'm at the back of the line, which turns out I was at the back of the line and just made it. So I filed for the PPP program, the payroll protection program, basically enables a business to get at the maximum 2.5 times one month's payroll expenses uh, capped at 100 grand per employee. So if, you'd, if your employees were making 300 grand, you'd only be able to cl- claim one third of that or whatever. The whole thing is kind of vague and, and it's, it's hard. There aren't all the answers answerable. And it's tough because, like, obviously, like, your perspective is with the skate park, and then every business, like, it's tough to have a one-size-fits-all based on that business's payroll, the absence of cash flow, the fixed costs, so on and so forth. Yeah. So, assuming – so, my, my – let's take a step back. My payroll is small. My, my rent, my lease, accounts for half of all the expenses of the business. 50% of the cost of be, being open is rent alone. Of the other half, payroll is half. So we're talking about a quarter of my expenses and then half of my expenses to put everything into perspective. So if I were to get the full amount they're, they're willing to give me, I would be able to get just over $10,000, which puts me in the same realm as the EIDL. Now, I didn't go for the PPP because in order for the money to be forgivable, 75% of that money has to go to payroll. Uh, and if you cut back hours or employees, you lose the same percentage of money as the percentage of hours you've cut back. So I was like, all right, well, obviously the EIDL makes more sense. It actually specifically mentioned my type of business, so it did that. Well, now I'm back to square one. I applied for the PPP program. And uh, I got a letter yesterday saying I was approved. I'm waiting on the second email with the, you know, sign it and they'll direct deposit me my money. Well, our money, the money, uh, and then I get to use it. And assuming I meet all the criteria, which I don't think is defined clearly enough, but assuming I do, that money is then forgivable. So flat out, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the $2,500, the 25% of it I'm allowed to use towards rent. I'm going to use towards rent. The rest of it I'm going to use to continue paying myself because I'm the only employee. And every penny I pay myself, I'm going to in turn put that back into the business because I, and that's still not going to be enough to keep it where I need to be. Um, and that's what it is. So, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. And that's the thing too, like for a lot of people that, you know, aren't in management, don't own their own business. And like for you, Dave, like a lot of the folks, like your demographic of people that are at the park, you get a lot of kids, right? And a lot of kids might not necessarily know like all the overhead that a business ensues. Yeah. And then like you as the owner, like, yeah, you want to get a return on your investment, but at the bare minimum, you still got to pay yourself so you can pay your bills, pay your rent. Um, <laughs> Do you want to shed a little bit more light, maybe on sort of like that aspect in terms? Well, of I don't paying? care about getting paid. Honestly, it's like it's 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 only about. People always say, "Oh, it's not about the money." And they're they're, to be frank, they're just fucking lying. To you. Right. Like, right. For me, it's about the money. Insofar as I could pay my rent and you know, buy bike parts once a year. Like I really don't care that much about the money, and that's why I'll take this money from the government and then pay the payroll tax as an employer and as an employee and lose probably 40% of it to dump it back in. I'll basically launder the government's money through the government so they could take 40% of it before I give it back to them, you know. But that's, I mean, I'm... 
And let me just throw this out because, like, I know you're a humble guy. And, like, shout out to anyone who's been following all the things Dave's been doing at the park. But, like, I've been seeing just even on Instagram, like, all the different rails that you guys have been making, putting those up around the community, showing kids not only, like, how to build those rails, but also throwing them up so people can still get some sense of uh, enjoyment while the skate park is a business is currently closed down. So, I mean, that says a lot about you and says a lot about what you're trying to build, like, in this community. Well, that's all intentional. Um the way I see it is this is going to be an event like this is really going to um, shed light on, on what businesses are, are faking it, you yeah. know? Yeah. And a lot of, there's a lot, especially when you get into the realm of like BMX and skateboarding, there's a lot of people that say they're in it for, you know, the passion or the scene. And then, you know, when, when you get through a little more, uh, when you get a little more visibility, a little you more You start stuff. to peel those layers of the onion back. If yeah. You will, and, yeah. um, there's a lot of people that say they're in it for the scene, but they're really just in it for their own free ride pass or what have you. And this, I see, as horrible as this is, this is a golden opportunity for me to drive home the point to all of our customers and everyone in, in this scene and, and skateboarding and BMX on a larger scale that, like, I'm in it for the right reason. Like, there's always people that doubt whatever you're going to do. And after this, I'm going to be like, if anyone wants to show up here and, and think that, like, I don't have everyone's best interest in mind, I'd be like, bro, you're blind. I got a document, bro. You seen these quarantine podcasts? We're putting out knowledge. No, but seriously, um, and you know, I mean, this is Rochester's only skate park. Um, this to me is a hub for so many people of different ages and different backgrounds to come in here and like share that passion that we're all interested in with action sports, whether you're riding a scooter, a skateboard, or a BMX bike. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's even the, the funny thing is like, no, <laughs> oh, you always talk about this when well, no matter what you do. Like, people are going to be like, why did you build it this way? Because people only see it in the dimension, you know, they're looking at it one-dimensionally, and, and that's fine, because that's, you skate, and you'd like to skate this type of obstacle, so that's what you want to see. It's like, why would you be thinking about what the 12-year-old wants to scooter, you know, and like... We could probably have a whole, you could probably have a whole podcast on, like, just terrain building and obstacles. Yeah, like, we just put that one rail out at Pine Village Gate, and it's tall, but like, I mean, we just hammered it to the upright, and that just is what it is. Any, to do the same rail but lower, more skate-friendly, would require, like, a whole... I don't even know. I'd have to, like, probably take it to the shop and weld feet on it and do some other method, you know. So it just kind of is what it is. The first two rails we built... This is what the skaters aren't going to realize. The first two rails that we put out, one of which is gone, were both... They're seven foot. A seven foot flat rail is so short, it, like, sucks to ride it on a bike. It's like... <laughs> it's like drier road park. It's like as soon as you start moving, you're like, oh... Those, cool. Is that sand in the corner? Oh, that's sand in the corner. Uh, yeah. My 680 mil bars aren't going to fit. I mean, <laughs> what? Uh, and just to finish up on that, the, the, just the money situation with the skate park, the final piece of the equation is, is, is the landlord itself, right? Because the big expense for me is the rent, you know? And believe it or not, every other thing I'm doing, like my insurance company, we're like, oh, we're not going to do like late payments. And, but I, I don't have to worry about that because I pay everything up front. So I have no insurance payments. But uh, my garbage, the dumpster company was like, hey, you could suspend service. There will be no fees. We will not charge you a dime until you start, we start doing pickups again. Like, boom, do it. You know, like, yep, yep. The, you know, like Verizon's like, oh, we're not going to, we'll give you extra data or whatever. You know, so like everyone's coming out. My landlord, Buckingham Properties, has, they have uh, deferred my rent uh, through the end of May. And then we're going to figure out what to do then. Uh, now I don't. It's not just rent. There's you know, a price per square foot for the space. Then there's a price price per square foot for the cam common area maintenance. Then there's cam taxes and cam insurance. So, although my rent 
is you know between eighty five and nine thousand dollars a month. Only like fifty seven hundred of it is the rent. Can so I, can I pause you quick? Yeah. Just for folks that don't know. So what was your rent a month again? Between eighty five and nine thousand dollars a month. Right. So like again, like you're talking over a hundred thousand dollars a year just yep. in rent to keep this place yep. open. So just I know you've covered another podcast, but just to drive that home for a lot of folks as to like why does Dave charge what he does for a day pass? I mean, like I'm cheap for what this is. I mean, try to yeah. go out and have fun for the price like I go rock climbing a lot and you're gonna pay twice as much to do that to go to the skate park. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just trying to like again throw a bone to you for a lot of folks that might not know, like the fixed costs involved for running a small business, let alone an operation like this, where before you can even make a dime to pay yourself, you got to be able to cover that overhead yeah, yeah. and rent. So, anywho. I used to do math real quick. If, if, if I sold only weekday sessions, mm -hmm. uh, which is not the case, but just $12 sessions for a $100,000 lease, that's 8,333 sessions just to cover the rent, not everything else. Yep. Right. So, and that just puts things into perspective. But, yeah, to go back to the landlord thing, they're waiving the rent. No, sorry, no. I wish they were waiving the rent. They're deferring the rent. So basically about 6000 times two months. So they're basically going to push off about $12,000 and say, well, at the end of May, we'll talk about it. Right. They're not pushing off my CAM. So I'm still going to have to pay about $3,000 a month in all those charges. Uh, that's common area maintenance. So that's paying the guy who you know goes around the building and picks up the trash and, and um, plowing the, the, the parking lot and all that, all that stuff. Um, so they did not give me any indication of whether they're going to cut me a break. They just said at the end of May, we can come up with a payment plan Char I, I suspect that they'll probably do something for me. They've been very, very great to me in the past. I have nothing but great things to say about Buckingham. Uh, you know, at the end of May, we'll see if I still do. <laughs> That's a harsh take kind of brings us full circle to what you were saying like not only about like action sports and bmx community but in the time of crisis whether you're looking at an individual's management or leadership it also shows like the true colors of a lot of businesses in terms of like how they interface with their customers and also interface with their employees so yeah my, my, my tentative plan is going to be like to be very like i always do i'm gonna be very honest i'm gonna go to my property company and say hey listen i got the ppp program to fit within the range, the range that gets me to be this amount forgivable, I can get this amount toward that, right? Right. And then I'll be frank with them as like, and then I'll say, I'm willing to match that amount personally, put that money into the business. So say it's 25 and 25, I'll be like, my starting point will be like, I can, how about I give you five and you call it, you know, and that's a decent starting point. Right. And they could say no, but the reality is we don't know what, how bad the times are going to be after this economically. And the worst case scenario for them is they lose a tenant and they have no rent coming in for the foreseeable future. And the next worst case scenario is they waive two months of rent for me. Yep. So like, again, if they're smart, both from a goodwill and ethical standpoint, they'll work with you because losing you, the absence of cash flow from a tenant that would be occupying this space, that, that hurts, right? That hurts. And it's particularly difficult for me because I, I might be able to get through this and then I end up in the summer months where I don't make enough to cover my bills to begin with. So I do have cash on hand because we plan seasonally. Right. So I did lose March and all my summer camp deposits, which would be summer summer uh, money to spend. But I, so, so I have a little bit of that. I can spend some of that. But that doesn't change the fact that when I do open, I'm not going to be profitable until probably October. 
Right. And there's a good chance I might not really even pay myself till October because I'm fully dedicated to do anything I have to do to get back open. And I would say this is probably going to personally, not in loss of income, but in actual out of my pocket, probably cost me ten, close to $10,000, if not more, depending on what the age is like. And if you were to count how much money, like, so there's money in our account from last year that was profits. We still have that, and I'm certainly going to have to use it. So, so that would be about 10 grand from last year that would have been my salary. So I'm going to lose that probably have to put in about 10 grand and then probably lose another maybe 10 grand in what I would have paid myself over the course of, you know, March through October. So it's like three things. It's like you're missing out on all the revenue that would have come in the last two months. And then the second thing is you're dipping into the reserves that you had built up. And then the third thing, unfortunately, is you're now going to be faced with opportunity cost loss this summer with the slow season yeah. and then also like the residual effects like let's just face it of a lot of people maybe being a little bit more strapped for cash to yep. come and ride or do recreational things and the really the really sad like the part that really bums me out like i'm not bummed about spending my money or not making money because like i said i'm in this for different reasons i am bummed that this was a, a good year this is going to be our year like historically most indoor parks last three to five years and in fact when i came into the picture with rasp it was at their three-year mark and they were panicking and I'm at my three-year mark, and we're doing we're doing okay, and we were making big moves this year with rec programs and and expanding in, into some new avenues that would make a little more icing on that cake to make us a little more profitable. And hopefully, I would have, was going to be able to hire another part-time person. And I was like, I'm like, I'm like, we got this. Like, I've done all the homework, right. I've done all the numbers. Like, we're going to execute. You know, this is we're going into phase three here, and now we're like kicked back down to phase one, but and then externally. Uh, BMX and skateboarding being in the Olympics in 2020 was going to be huge for the sport. And now that's pushed back too. And the fact that the economy had been so good and then it looks like skateboarding was going to get even larger. And now all of that's out the window. All of that. On a positive note though, and like you're keeping it real, like this is what a lot of small business owners are facing in the community, in the country, um, particularly with action sports. I would like to think just with the way you run your business and kind of like how you acclimate your own lifestyle to kind of keep things lean and and foster with that and survive kudos and then second of all it does seem like piggybacking off your point of the momentum you guys have built the last three years there is a good dedicated community that will hopefully will support this park like once y'all are open up and when we say support i mean come in and ride yep i'm not about that like go fund me buy gift cards ahead of time crap if i get that desperate i'll ask for help but i'm not trying to get there word uh, and the, la the last thing on this topic is, like, say I owned a bike shop or a skate shop, and I was like, all right, this isn't working. I'm going to close up. That's fine. I just, you know, sell the bikes, take my tools home. I can't just pack up and leave here because there's 22,000 square feet of ramps. Whatever it would cost the property company to get rid of this, which means probably bringing in a backhoe and smashing it to pieces into a dumpster, they would charge that to me. So the cost of me closing is not just losing my business. It'd probably be about $20,000 in them getting rid of this or me spending like a month dismantling this and like b breaking my lower back for the, for the sake of saving that money. Which we don't want because lower, lower backs are expensive to fix. I have a crushed disc, so it sucks sometimes. It's a day ruiner. But yeah, that's where we're at with all the CARES stuff. Uh, honestly, it doesn't look super great, but like I always say to people, I'm not a loser and I'm not planning on losing and I'm not going anywhere, so... You're a winner. I'm not a winner. I'm just I'm, not, I'm just not a loser. 
I don't excel at winning. I just excel at not losing. I like your I like your swag, like, as, like the, a, as the kids would say. I'm like a fifth through second place kind of guy, but con, but but consistently yeah, across the board. Yeah, yeah, like when you average it out, you're like, all right, he's doing pretty all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where we're at. If you have any particular questions about any of this care stuff and any of this, like I'm no expert in it, but if you have any questions, just drop uh, comment it, and then I I will address it in a later podcast. Uh, and like you know, if you follow the podcast, I'm not afraid to give you any of my numbers. I'll give you everything. I don't care. Slide into his DMs. Don't care at all. So, section two, um, smooth transition. We're going to talk two. about how, uh, or at least how Matt and I believe the Corona COVID pandemic uh, is affecting bike riding across the board. Uh, what that means? Is it going to hurt it? You know, should you be riding? All those fun things. As he sanitizes his hands. See, we're being safe. We are. I know the camera looks close on camera, but that's an optical illusion. We're actually twelve feet away. Twelve feet away. Mm-hmm. Social distance. So obviously, we've talked about how Corona is affecting the skate park. Uh, but you know, I've been out in out of Basil. There's people skating there. That you know. So, I mean, what do you, what do you think? It's wild. I mean, okay, so um, you're seeing it impact road riders, park riders with BMX. I think with mountain biking, particularly with the downhill guys and gals, you're seeing all the lift access parks close, or Mm -hmm. a a wide majority of them, uh, particularly on the East Coast, places like Killington, Highland, Thunder Mountain. Well, I would just interject and say um, when it comes to a facility, Mm -hmm. and like this is how I feel about it and how I have felt about it, it's a matter of liability. 100%. So, so, like, obviously, if you're watching this, you can notice there's, like, probably six or seven people here, which is probably not okay based on some of the guidelines. But I'm not open. I'm not providing a service. It's not like come in. These people did not pay me anything. They're uh, guests. They're guests, yeah. They all came in, and they're all keeping their distance. It's, it's on them. Basically, in, in this instance, I'm kind of acting like a public sphere. You, they're just coming in doing their thing, Yep. which is, like, a lot of... Um, like the golf courses around town, they're closed, closed, the clubhouse is closed, but you could actually go on and just play it for free. Yeah. And there's like, um, there's other institutions too. Like it's that differentiation between like a business versus a club or a public access facility. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, so like, let's, we can't just pedal up the mountain for the lift access parks. <sighs> I know you get a bunch of people crying. What Until is I it? get my pedal assist on? I only ride park, bro. Um, but you get, <laughs> I think even locally in Rochester, it's interesting. Like, okay, so like we, you and I were both at Bay Park West yesterday, and I would like to think a majority of people are exercising information from the CDC, the medical community, to keep their six foot or more distance, um, cover their cough. And just keep space on the trails. Um, but at the same token, like, um, give me a second, Stowe Trail System in Vermont, I believe 24 or 48 hours ago, they closed down everything. Mm-hmm. That whole access. And that, don't quote me on this, but I want to say that's, I mean, we're talking miles of a trail system shut down completely. Mm-hmm. That's their choice. Um, so it's really interesting. I mean, I think, I think for people that are road riding or doing cross-country, there's sort of an individual onus to go out and be respectful and be safe. Well, do you think there's a difference between whether it be mountain bike trails or an outdoor public park, skate park, or a street spot for that matter? Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between one person riding alone, two people riding together, five people riding at the skate park that are friends and went together versus five people that just happen to all be there at the same time? 
I think, okay, so I'll give you my opinion. I think, in my opinion, the numbers aren't so much as relevant as it is the decisions of the individuals involved, right? Okay, Mm -hmm. so I think you and I probably share the same opinion on that. Like, if people are willing to take responsibility and input from the people in the medical community to exercise social distance, to exercise, you know, hand sanitizing and just being smart, then game on. Whether there's five people or 50, if they're adhering to those guidelines, shouldn't be a problem. But from a governing authority, I mean, I get it. Like a bunch of people get in a group and then all of a sudden they get lax. So I don't know. I see it from different angles, but I like to think, at least in my mind, you know, the individual can hopefully make a smart decision based on intel that they gather. There's an element to this uh, that, well, there's a lot of elements to this that irk me, but there's, well, one thing is that information isn't super great right now. And whichever side of the argument you tend to be on, people will just use that lack of information to support their side of the argument. Like I would say, uh, it seems like it's not airborne, but they say in some cases it seems like it has been airborne. Like it's not exactly clear. Uh, And if it is airborne, six feet might not be enough, but it's not clear. So if we're out somewhere and we're all doing our six feet, we're doing what we should be doing based on the recommendation, right? Um, the other thing is there's also this weird, like implied assumption that it doesn't take two people to consent into being in the same place at the same time, right? Like if you say, oh, person A is not following the guidelines, or at least I perceive person A is not, they're going to get people sick. And it's like, well, the person that chose to be near that person chose to be near that person. Like I chose to be near you right now because you choose to be near near me. Right. And like we both know that and we're both accepting that risk. Correct. It's not like I would be the bad guy for infecting you right now like because you didn't have a choice in the matter. Right, if we're both consenting to do that. Whether that's the smartest choice or not, you know, it's that's debatable. to be debatable. debatable. So even, all right, so even this, so like, you know, um, you go to Wegmans. Like, if I go to Wegmans, I got my hand sanitizer. I'm conscious of what I'm doing with my hands. I got an N95 respirator I'll put on. But it's not to say if I'm going to swap that loaf of bread and that six or a Genesee cream ale, I might not be next to somebody who's, like, coughing right mm-hmm. next to me, not wearing a respirator. Um, and that's unfortunate. And I will say from a governing standpoint, I do see a little bit of the essence of trying to enforce a little bit of the extreme edge just to kind of mitigate some of those folks in public that aren't going to think clearly or be smart about their choices. I mean, it is true. um, You're way, way, way more likely to get this from being near someone that coughed or or talked or sneezed than you would be from touching something someone else touched. Right. That was on the, um, according to the CDC, I was actually looking this up last night because I was reading specifically about the threats of the supermarket. Mm -hmm. They said the the air would be more threatening in the supermarket because there's just so many people around than touching stuff other people touched. Which is another point I was trying to make is I I use this analogy, the fire analogy, like Mm. regardless of how big a fire is or uh, how, you know, what what's burning in the fire or how long the fire has been burning there's a protocol you you exercise so you don't get burnt right whether that's a bonfire or a small campfire or your house right um right now it feels like the house is on fire but the thing is you you keep your like you keep your distance from the fire and and you're not going to get burnt but you do have the benefit of feeling the heat with with the viruses it's like the same thing the virus is the fire as long as you're always keeping your distance you're not going to be a be a be a threat but you can't feel the heat. That's the that's the downside. You know, you don't really know how close you are to it. Yeah, and I mean, I think, and like you and I talked about this, like, 
before the podcast or whatever, like, at the end of the day, I, I like, I think both you and I are on the same page. Like, we're taking this very seriously, like, both in how we're changing up, like, our day-to-day with our personal lives, our businesses, protocols with hand sanitizer, distance, mm-hmm. what we're doing in public. And that's good. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with critiquing how certain officials might be handling things and why we're shut down Mm -hmm. the way we are, but also very much understanding people are dying from this. This is a serious pandemic. There are ramifications to it. Like those don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. The way I see it is it, uh, hashtag my body, my choice, but you should also listen to what the people in charge say. Like like by people in charge too, like just to throw in on that, like people in the scientific community and medical community yeah, that yeah. have credentials that yeah, are the, of more the, merit the, than say a politician. The, accred- the people's authority is, you know, it is a meritocracy. Um, totally. Yeah. So honestly, I wouldn't, if there's a problem is there's a snowballing effect. So uh, if you were to see a group of people out there skateboarding, you're like, Oh, well maybe I'll join, you know? And then, and then as you start to get in that session and you're not paying attention, all of a sudden, sick trick and like oh crap we just touched hands you know yeah uh, and that's the dangerous part so you know there is an element of that where it's like what's acceptable uh let's not normalize this because then you'll forget like, you very easily forget what's going on right and i think like with this dialogue and just with some of the aspects you're getting into in terms of consent and individual responsibility like you are not insinuating or saying to anyone like oh this is not an issue like just go out and do whatever like Clearly, it's important for people to stay informed and stay educated on what they can do to mitigate the risk and also take ownership for their own actions and safety. Yeah. Yeah. And um, not to go into any, any uh, particulars about anything particular, but, you know, uh, it was said that, you know, I, I may have been said, sending a, it may have been perceived as sending a bad message if I was out riding we were all, all mountain biking. It's a group today, ride, right? yeah. Uh, and and it's it's interesting because it's implying that I'm not taking it seriously. It's implying that I don't know what I'm doing, uh, and it's also implying that I'm sending a message. Uh, in fact, I did not post anything on the internet showing me doing stuff with people. I've po- I have posted a video every other day, and every day, and every other day, every one of those videos, I'm saying how this is serious, and everyone to be. I'm saying over and over, be safe, listen to the guidelines, you know, and then. I'm doing what I got to do. We, you know, the reality is we all have different risk factors. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I literally don't come in contact with anyone except for a small group of people. I right. mean, t- right now, this is about as close as I've been to someone. Right. Um, I don't have any older family around here or older family at all for that matter. So my risk factors aren't quite as high as other people, especially if you're someone that say like you are essential and you are going out and working like your rest you need to be way more careful right totally if 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 um my mom is still alive believe it or not she doesn't live here but if she did live here i would certainly would would like to see her and if i was being around someone susceptible i would be like like i'm being safe but i would be like uber safe like because it's like the last thing i want to do is is kill my mom you know right and like even on the group ride you know that we were on yesterday like I would like to say, I'm going to say 95% of the time, everybody was six feet or more space. Could there have been a few times where we broke that six-foot barrier? Yeah, I think there's I mean, a like, yeah, Sometimes you go into a corner, you slow down, you right. come up right behind them, right. you know. Um, but, but at the same time, all the riders were wearing gloves. 
Um, I know I had a face mask on and like, again, there wasn't a posted like, you know, social media, like, oh man, like everybody meet at the try on parking lot. Like, let's have this whole hoedown, slap hands at the end, drink a beer, like whatever. It was like, okay, we're going to go out and responsibly exercise like some social distancing out in the woods at a safe measure without coming in too close to contact. And and I needed to work on my bike and uh, the one, I don't remember his name, I used his tools, but he took the toolbox out of his car put it on the ground, walked away from it. Yep. I walked over, I opened it, yep. I used it, I closed it up, walked away. He picked up the toolbox and then he took it back to his car and yep. he made sure his hands didn't touch where my hands were. And like, we are taking it very seriously as everyone should. What's your take? Like, I know we've talked about mostly mountain biking and sort of that aspect with coronavirus. What has been your perspective, Dave, with like the BMX and skate scene in terms of how things have been impacted by Corona? I mean... Aside from the skate park being closed, wow. <laughs> I mean, people are out there. I see people riding street. A lot of people are riding street alone, or they're going out in groups of two or three. You know. Yeah. Um, I'd imagine people are being very cautious because I'll see people posting a self-filmed clip. Yeah. Versus not posting like, "Here's me and my friends," because that right. insinuates, "Oh, well, here, take my phone and film me." Then you give my phone back. So it it seems like if I had to imply anything, it sounds like people are actually being very cautious with that. You know. Um, but you never know. And I think like sort of bringing things full circle with maybe a few of the comments that like you experienced like with social media the other day, like I think it's easy for someone to see a video in today's day and age, make an assumption based on their own lens and then cast an opinion and Hey, that's their right. Um, but unfortunately what's depicted on a, a, a photo or a video doesn't always showcase the full story or the background impact that led to precautions in place before that yeah. video or photo was posted yeah. Yeah. um i will mention i did ride uh josh my roommate right right did ride his bike and now that i'm thinking about it like i'm thinking very critically right now about like all the things i've done and have I put myself at risk yeah and i did ride his bike but we also uh live together and share a bathroom and everything so like and at that range because i was thinking like I mean, if we're all mountain biking, if no, you're not touching me, I'm not touching you, no one's making out, I don't care how good the trick was, you're just like kissing. Air high five, bro. Yeah, all air yeah. fives, you know, it's just, yeah. yeah. I don't think, no swap and I spit. don't think anyone, even the most serious uh, social distancing people are probably still c- capable to get their ride on, whether it just be doing like ollies in the driveway or something, you know. I literally ride every day or go out and play disc golf every day and it's like most of the time I'm alone. I do hang out with the Pims. You don't know the Pims, but they're skate park family, and like nice. I go to their house a couple of days a week, and that we're pretty much in like there's a circle of probably maybe a total of six people I've been in contact with through this whole thing, and that's that's it. Period. Yeah, I can like I know for me with my occupation and just my personality. Prior to about four weeks ago, I mean, I'm, I'm in contact with people constantly, like probably thirty to fifty people every day with my job, and then socially at least a dozen or so a week. But in the last, let's say, four or five weeks, I think I've probably cut my impact to, like, same thing, about six to eight people. Yeah. I would. I was thinking, uh, I was like a numbers guy, so I was thinking at the skate park, and I was like, so let's see, six feet. So that's six feet every direction. So that's 12 feet total, 12 by 12. Uh, let, let's say, let's, let's even double that. Say it's 24, 12 both directions, so 24. 24 by 24 is like, what, like 550 or something? 22,000 square feet divided by that is like you could have 38 people in here and everyone would be 25 feet away, right? right? So it doesn't sound that bad. The problem is everyone bottlenecks to the door, right? The problem is 
you'd have to pay, you know, so. Because I've thought about. Point like, of sale, terminal, that change yeah. of cash or card, I'm blood not, money, whatever, you know. Yeah. I'm yeah. not allowed to be open, but I was thinking like, man, if I could be open, like, is there a way I could do it safe? And it's like, man, if I had like five different entrances, maybe, <laughs> you know. And even so, and that's where it does get tricky and like the devil's advocate a little bit is like, well, you do get people that bottleneck and then yep. the heat of the moment, do they just accidentally or inadvertently bump hands or like, yep, yep. you know what I mean? So. Oh, yeah, you know, you're, you're in between runs. You lean on the, on the same place everyone else leans. Yep. I did think early on before it was like everyone has to be closed. I was like, all right, can I, li I was thinking I'll limit it to, you know, maybe a dozen people per session. There's no shop to hang out in. Like basically you'd come in the door. We'd do only credit card transaction, and then you'd enter the park, and I'd be like, you know, 12 people, one person per section at a time. And I was like, I think that could probably work. And then, like, we went from zero to 60, and in, in, like, three days, it was like, okay, everything's closed. And I wonder, Dave, too, and, like, I guess we'll – I know the governor just announced this morning or this afternoon that the distancing and closure of non-essential businesses is going to continue till May 15th. Yeah. I wonder after that if there will be sort of, like, a reverse effect where it's like, okay, non-essential businesses can open, but they got to operate at 25% capacity and then 50 and then 75. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We'll find out. I mean, that's a weird thing, too, because how do you – that's like a – how do you gauge that, you know? Right. Yeah. Like, like, how do you, I mean, I guess with employees, it's a little bit more clear cut because you generally have a certain amount, but as far as like traffic or capacity, like yeah. think about that from like a restaurant standpoint, like yeah, yeah. how do you like, like, well, you, at least from a restaurant standpoint, there's a set amount of tables and chairs. So they just take out a quarter of them. Or that's take, true. I got 10 me, tables. Like, I got to start with two and a half, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. my busiest Saturdays, I do 150 people over the course of six sessions. My slowest Saturdays, I'll do like 50 people over the course of three sessions. So, it, I mean, it would be kind of like, what? Why do I do this? And then there's the whole aspect of like, how do you enforce it? Or how do you gather the intel to truly know yep. if somebody's operating at what percentage? But that's a whole nother, yep. that's a whole nother topic. And there's the risk factor in a place like this. It's so loud when there's people in here that if I'm trying to talk to you, you're going to want to be close to me. And then I'm going to be, I'm going to be really um, projecting my voice. And then that's going to have more water droplets come out. And yep. then you're, it's a higher risk of, of transmitting, assuming, assuming you, you have it. Absolutely. But... I, mean, I think I think everyone's really taken their steps. Um, I think everyone should listen and everyone should be very, very serious about it. And that should be relative to your particular life. And, you know, I so, think this sort of and I'm sure this will be the direction you're headed. But I think this kind of ties into that culture of BMX and mountain biking in terms of that accountability and owning your actions for whatever feature, trick, ramp or whatever the hell it is you're trying to attempt. Yeah, yeah, one of the things about this, uh, and this is very much tied into what I do with the skate park, because the skate park for a lot of people is just like sanity. Uh, without skateboarding, a lot of people would lose their shit, frankly. That, that, Amen. That they burn out that anxiety through skating, right? So when you have this situation like in New Jersey where they're closing the parks, it's like in, in a society where we're becoming so conscious, borderline obsessed with mental health, rightfully so yeah it's like oh you need to stay home and it's a it's a pandemic and a lot of people are going to die and you're not allowed to go get fresh air and you can't go outside it's like, like how do you want to ravage the mental health of this country like you have to give people some hope you have to give people a little bit of leeway even if it's the illusion of having some choice you gotta let people just you know whether it be a you know, go for a walk or a run or f r skate a flat bar in your driveway. That's why I got all these flat rails. We're going we're gonna give to one, give one away and we're going to try to sell them for whatever people are willing to pay. I mean, if you looked at the quality of those welds, you'd be like, yeah, they're not worth that much. <laughs> My man Stevie Wonder over here laying down those beats. No, <laughs> just kidding. No disrespect to Stevie either. Phenomenal musician. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that uh, was a conspiracy that he was blind, right? I might have. I don't have my tinfoil hat with me, but like, I don't know. I could probably dust it off. No, dude. Um, well said. Did and you like, see his latest music video? I did not. He didn't either. Oh, where's the? We need the edit yeah. for like the truth bombs. Like, boo, 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 boo. I think. Um, I think when it comes to mental health, um, there's a lot of. First of all, it's 2020. If you have issues of any kind, it's important to get help. And I'm really glad that that stigma societally in the United States is starting to diminish. There's a lot of people for various reasons that might not have access to, you know, um, a counselor to see a physician and get that help. And that's where, for me, and I mean a lot of other people, when you look at good, healthy outlets that, you know, often have to do with exercise and fitness, people come here, they skate, they had their scooter, they got their bike, whatever. It's an outlet. It's an outlet of escape. It's an outlet to seek adrenaline. Um, but that outlet helps contribute to a better overall health and a better overall life. Well, just to wrap that up, uh, the pandemic is certainly having an effect on your ability to ride, but not too bad. Um, I imagine the people that ride for social reasons haven't been, and the people that ride for mental health reasons should, you know, they know they got to go out and get their thing and skate or, you know, I've sold a couple grind boxes and, you know, you, you listen to yourself, man. You got to, you don't want to be sitting there festering in your, in your house being like, I want to, I want to go do something stupid because I wound up like a something that's really tightly wound ready to explode ticking yeah. time bomb so i think i think we'll be fine um there's a lot of other things that have been, like if you were say you were like a rock climber and all this and you can't climb like that's a lot harder to supplement like you could still ride your bike or scooter down the street and you know do your tail apps like find ways you can do your hobby in a safe and sustainable way right and that's the essence i think of bmx and skateboarding where you make do with what you got whether you live yep. in the sticks the burbs or the city and I know it was snowing today, but it is mid-April, and the warmer weather's coming, and we'll be okay. And that's that's we're we were kind of on the cusp of what we were just talking. The next section is going to be about. This is going to be the longest podcast I've ever done for this one, at least. Longest podcast breaking free quarantine series. <laughs> it's my best uh, infomercial <laughs> voice. So we're gonna go to the third section today, and we're gonna talk about we're gonna compare and contrast uh, mountain bike and BMX. Uh, culture, not the actual riding, the, the kind of the culture around it. So we're going to open up and each of us are going to give it a couple of minutes to just say your background in BMX and or skateboarding. I'm sorry, BMX and or mountain biking. Uh, then we're going to each talk about the similarity. We're each mention talk. We're sorry, man. I made it like 40 minutes without stammering like that. Bro, good. you're good. You're good. Dust your um, shoulder off and keep ripping. We're going to each give maybe like two or three places or aspects where they have similarities and two or three where they have differences. And then in the end, we're going to, each one of us is going to give us, say, like, I'm going to say, what can mountain biking learn from BMX? And then you're going to say, what do you think BMX can learn from mountain biking culturally? All right. Sounds good. So you can go first here because I've been talking for a while. Give me your background in BMX and or mountain biking. Okay. If any. Cool. I like it. Um, Okay, so I'm not a BMXer. I'll get that right up front. Um, I grew up in a rural community, uh, actually about 40 minutes north of where FBM Bikes is located in Ithaca, New York. So I grew up in a small town. Shout out Steve Crandall um, of FBM. What's that? Romulus, New York. You're from Romulus. I oh, okay. Am. 315. Um, I grew up in a small town. I was, so long story short, I had a background in motocross, uh, ATVs and dirt bikes. I raced. 
uh, hair scrambles and moto, um, moved to Rochester for college and kind of got out of the moto scene. Roommate of mine told me about mountain biking. He's like, hey, dude, you're getting chubby. You keep drinking Jenny's and eating pizza. Um, let's get you out on the trail, and it'll fulfill that adrenaline that you had racing moto. It's a little bit safer, too. Eh, that's debatable, but that could be a whole other podcast. Um, so I got into cross country. I did that around spring of 2011. Had a great time. Rode at Dryer, rode at Tryon. Fall of 2012, um, a guy that I was playing basketball with at the time, Paul Twist, um, he had said, Wolfman, you got to come to Pinnacle Hill, Clinton and Field Street. I went to Pinnacle Hill. I met um, Anthony Stockwell, uh, Dan Cunningham, and then Anthony's brother, Alex Frigo. And super cool guys. I was greener than a piece of celery. They brought me up to Pinnacle with my 29er hardtail. And I literally, it just blew my mind all the cool jumps out there. That weekend, sold my cross-country bike, bought a downhill bike, and then pretty much for the next, like, seven years, just embraced downhill, dirt jumps, that whole scene, went to a bunch of bike parks. And I've kind of come full circle now um, after about nine years of riding where, you know, I enjoy riding trails. I enjoy enduro trips. I enjoy riding lift. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of like the gist in a nutshell of kind of how I got into things. And, like, I'm super fortunate, man. Like, there's such an awesome community here of cross-country riders, downhill riders, BMX. And I really believe there's a lot of overlap between all the disciplines. But no BMX. No BMX too. Did I forego them? I no, I'm saying. No, I'm saying. But you have a, You don't have any. BM, you have a BMX bike, girl. No, up? dude. So I had a BMX bike. Um, I would not call myself a BMX rider, and I think that is. <laughs> I think that's an important decision. Um, what kind of bike do you have? I had a Hoffman Disruptor that I bought in 2004 from Geneva Bike Shop. Awesome people there in the Finger Lakes. Um, Mark and Suzanne, husband and wife team. They turn wrenches there. Really good people. Um, and like a lot of kids, I think, uh, growing up in that time period, I was enamored with the Tony Hawk video game, mm -hmm. uh, Dave Mira, and mm -hmm. then X Games. And like, mm -hmm. the, not to get too far off topic, but I can vividly remember uh, like 2003 watching Fuse TV and Steve Crandall on the props BMX Megator. And like as a kid growing up in a small town, I saw all these Jamokes pile into a van, drive to different cities, jam out to crusty punk rock tunes and just shred whatever city was there. And I mm -hmm. thought it was the coolest thing. And that's where, you know, my due to some slave labor of like working at the farm and different jobs, I was able to get a BMX bike and act like I was cool for like a couple summers. <laughs> so a lot of, I what BMX is for a lot of people, just acting like they're cool for a few summers. That was pretty much me. Like I remember the first time I went to a skate park in the hopping town of Waterloo, New York and realized like, wow, I have no skills. I cannot bunny hop. I don't know how to ride vert. And then I kind of got into motocross and got out of that. But mm -hmm. yeah, so that's my, that's my background in a nutshell. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I'm obviously a BMX rider. I own a skate park if you didn't know. I wasn't familiar. <laughs> Um, I got my, I always rode bikes as a kid, you know, I, I had a Schwinn Z-Force when I was a little kid, and had little jumps in the yard, you know, I didn't know what BMX was, I just, like, made a little, you know, piece of plywood and this. Um, when I got older, uh, I got into middle school, I saw someone with a BMX magazine, and I was like, what is what? that? And I was like, this is a thing? Uh, and then two years later, I ended up having a class with that kid again when I was a freshman. And I was like, all right, I need a real bike. You know, then I just hounded my parents. My first bike was a 2000 Harrow Shredder. Yeah. It was like 43 pounds, four pegs, solid chromoly uh, crank arms. And then that was pretty much it. My life was, well, 
I transitioned from Dragon Ball Z into BMX. <laughs> it was just Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z, and then it got into the BMX. And then I did nothing but ride bikes from, like, basically from when I was 15 till when I was 27, probably. Didn't do anything, cared about nothing but bike riding. And, in, and mostly street, right, you said? Only street, yeah. Only but when I was really young, when I was a teenager, you know, there's nothing to ride in our little town. Uh, so we had dirt jumps. So it was like curbs. There was like one bank to wall ride and like dirt jumps. So the only reason I had any smoothness in my riding was because we had these dirt jumps. Because like I, I'm not the smoothest rider. The only smoothness I have is from muscle memory from doing the same trick nine million times, not from natural. Like I'm, I'm a muscle rider, not a finesse rider. Um, so that led me to working in bike shops. I did that for uh, basically my whole adult life. I got a mountain bike in 2000. Nine, maybe? 2008 or nine. I got a, a, a Redline monocog, single-speed, rigid 29er, of course. Rode it a bunch. I knocked my teeth out uh, 2010, I think. BMX or mountain biking? BMX. And it was really bad. Uh, like, I was, like, pretty, pretty fucked up, to be honest. And I had, like, a horrible, like, PTSD thing for, like, a year. So I rode mountain bikes a lot that, that particular year. Because I would have this crazy, like, panic attack when I would go up a ramp and feel that, like, transition. Like, if it was a wedge ramp, I'd be fine. If it was transitioned, like, a quarter pipe, I'd have, like, a flashback. It was crazy. And it, like, I was just like, I'll deal with this shit later. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I just rode BMX, like, kind of within a limited scope yeah. as I was kind of getting my confidence back and just mountain biked a lot. Uh, then, you know... You, you, you know, the, well, the bike shop burned down, and a lot of the guys I uh, mountain bike with moved on to other jobs. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden your buddy's not around who's asking to ride, and you don't ride. And then I moved here eventually, and I was always like, man, I should mountain bike. Like, man, I should try a mountain bike. And I started the skate park. And then I was working nights, and when everyone else is out of work having fun, I was here. So I had no one to ride with, and riding BMX is alone. And after being like a little baby to myself for like a year finally i just went to bay park west by myself and like i don't know what i was so scared of i was just like i don't, I don't know the trails like and bay park west is tiny right. like it's like a dirt roller coaster and i remember i remember the first time i went there and i remember like i got onto the back side of the park i was on the green trail every time i ride past i think comes up i remember that one ride that one day and just being like what was i so scared of and then I just started uh, obsessively mountain biking because kind of the skate park kind of took a lot of the. Um, uh, it didn't take the passion of the BMX for me. It just added a dimension to it that made it harder to enjoy, and getting to be alone in the woods gave what street riding gave to me in the past back to me. That's interesting, and I think for a lot of people with mountain biking. And, and let's be clear, right? So people, BMX, mountain bike, skateboard, any action sport, people do things for different reasons, right? Human nature. I would, I would argue that with mountain biking, a common denominator is people that are looking for an escape. They're looking for an escape from that everyday grind, their stress, their worries, their problems. So it's interesting that for you, you know, where that outlet was once BMX, due to a number of different reasons, kind of blossomed into getting you into mountain bikes. And, like, I know you talk about this, um, or you probably have talked about this on different podcasts, but like probably a lot of people that might only know you from the park setting or the BMX days of the past, they might not know that you're like killing it on the Strava segments, <laughs> clocking miles every week, clocking thousands of miles a year, well, um, which is dope. Like I think that shows a lot about you as a rider from like the different dichotomy of, of ways that you like to enjoy two wheels. 
Well, part of that is, like I said earlier, uh, I'm not a loser. So if you give me a metric, I'm like, all right, how can I be good at this said metric? Right. But also another dimension is like, you know, I was not a happy person for most of my life. And, you know, BMX is what gave me my livelihood, you know. And then, like I said, it became tough where my livelihood, my financial livelihood was also the passionate thing. And then it came this weird intersection. And when I got back into mountain biking, I like fell in love with biking all over again. Like it was like I was 16. Holy crap. I got a I got like my city bike and my mountain bike. And I just started riding everywhere. And then I found this incredible escape in having this meditative space riding. And like in the past, every one of the past three years I've done, I did like, like 5,000 miles, 4,000 miles and like 3,000, 3,500 miles. Like I've just a ton of mileage and my life changed dramatically when I got that mental space, spent that meditative time, and like obviously, obviously with the help of like some online sources and you know I took some online psychology courses and stuff and like learning a little bit about how the brain works and then that applying that into that meditative space let me really put like my ducks in the row of like you know my my beliefs and like my values and like why I'm doing what I'm doing and, and who I am as a person and like. This isn't so much the mountain biking because when you're mountain biking, you kind of have to focus on your train. This is more so like the just this out on the street riding. Just being out clocking miles on the road or on the back, yeah, you know, yeah. gravel grinding, whatever. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And that's like priceless, man. Priceless. Yeah. And like, so, and I know you and I talked about this a little bit, like even before the podcast. Like, so, you know, you look, there's so many different subsets of biking. But if we look at like BMX, mountain biking, road, um, whatever, gravel grinding or commuting, to me, there's such a beauty in how all those overlap. And, like, I don't mean to, like, romanticize or get all philosophical, but it is cool. Like, it's rad that there's so much um, power both in how you can escape or you can channel and focus on whatever it is you're mm-hmm. riding. It's really empowering, too, because unless you're, like, an absolute bitch about it, like, you're going to be somewhat progressive in riding. Yep. And there's all, and it's, like, it's like a dual... Um, it's, like... You have your lungs, and then you have, like, your leg strength. Totally. And, th- and there's days your, your lungs are there, but your legs aren't. And, like, like, for example, I ran a bunch this winter. And my when we were riding yesterday, I did a pretty significant ride yesterday, a lot of hills. And I've found that my cardio has actually in- increased a lot. But, like, I'm getting to that point where I'm, like, three-quarters up the way at the hill. I'm not really winded, but, like, I'm feeling it in, like, in, my, in, my, in my legs. And I'm, like, normally I w- no- last season – my legs would be fine, but I would be running out of breath. So you always have that little bit of like progression element going there, you know, yeah. which is good for mental health. I remember totally, totally. And there's so much we could say about that. Like I know as far as like the fitness aspect and I feel like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I feel like a lot of like BMXers, like they might not necessarily be concerned per se with the fitness. Right. But I think like, as we all get older and you start to say like, okay, like I'm not Superman or Superwoman. Um, I got to be able to like sustain maybe I got to be able to sustain like through diet and fitness, um, the ability to do the thing I love. And, uh, I remember when I first started getting into downhill riding, the top downhill dudes that I was hanging out with in racing, they also rode a lot of trails. They understood the value of that cross discipline and vice versa. There's a lot of trail riders that they dabble with downhill and that helps give them an edge with like navigating their terrain and staying sharp when it gets gnarly. Well, I have two things on that. One is there are a bunch of older people that think BMX is exercise and you're just lying to yourself. It's not. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons why I was so good 
transferring into mountain biking is because the way I rode BMX, I filmed. We filmed, I personally put out seven projects, two full-length DVDs, and had at least had two full sections in one half split part in another video. So basically for a decade of my life, I did nothing but film. And, and the, I'm a technical rider, and I'm an intense filmer. You could ask Josh about it. <laughs> I, I like, there it's not uncommon for me to try a trick a hundred times riding in a circle, trying again with, and not taking a break. So like I had actually been training like cardio wise, like that's exercise. Like that's like that elevated heart rate for like an hour. That's serious. Yep. And it was just like, but that I was just trying to land a cl clip. Now that I, I know more about fitness, I, I'm thinking, man, if I th like knew how this shit worked, I could have just taken a break, got my heart rate back down. And, and would have would have, would have had a little more muscle control, but whatever. <laughs> One of the things I love, um, and like I, I won't delve too much into this, but like I do believe there is a lot of uh, unison with like sort of that that punk rock music in America and like BMX and skateboarding in particular, where there's that like fostering angst and energy and putting into something mm -hmm. whatever you have mm -hmm. with whatever scene you have, whatever tools you have, whatever equipment you have, and making something out of it. And that I think among other things, is the root of, like, you and I and so many others here love the extreme sport they're in, whether that's biking, skateboarding, scootering, whatever. You take what you got, you take the vibe and experience you got, and you try to make something of it. Yeah. And it's a beautiful yeah. thing. For sure. But it's also not sustainable if you don't take some initiatives oh, with yeah. your diet, your health, your safety equipment, your maintenance of your equipment, blah, blah, blah. Well, we're basically already on this second, the second section where this, we're talking all about the similarities. Yeah. But one of the differences I, I, that I would see here is that there's obviously an element um, in non-BMX cycling where, like, there is a health-conscious element. In yeah. BMX, it's very segmented. There are a few, like, niche BMX riders who are, like, health guys. But BMX lifestyle is not promoting healthy lifestyle. I mean, like, there's such a romanticism of, of weed culture, which I think is pathetic. Right. Uh, there's, you know, obviously the FBM days, it was like p party and party. Live and, fast, die young. Yeah. Right. And, that, and, and, and again, like, no diss to any of those guys or gals that, like, helped promote and elevate BMX. But again it's tough to make that sustainable, that lifestyle. Like, I believe, like, I think Steve Crandall of FBM, like, I'm pretty sure he's sober now. Like, he, he's turned a different leaf. Great guy, does, has done amazing things for BMX. And again, like, you look at guys like Matt Hoffman, who are absolute goats in the scene, but as they get older, they have to be a lot more conscious about a lot of the things we talked yeah. about. Yeah. I, I was blown away uh, years ago. I don't know how long, but the E-America skateboarding video, uh, which, what was it? Stay Gold? Or this is, Stay Gold, yeah. Uh, Andrew Reynolds, he's pretty old, and that part in that video was outrageous. It's a great video. It's pr the production of that video is just awesome. Uh, and then there's like a whole bunch of bonus, and it's like him, just he's so anal and so serious, but he's also anal and serious about his body and his health. And like there's, I remember seeing clips of him, they're in like France, and he's like trying this crazy 360. And a no grab 360 on a skateboard is just ridiculous. Rodney Mullen's another one that comes to mind too with skateboarding. Yeah. And he's like, tr yeah. he's killing himself in this 360. He lands it, yeah. and everyone's like, yeah, and they're clapping, and he just turns around and like, wait, wait that wasn't good enough? And then they show him in the hotel room, and all the young guys are, you know, they're drinking their beer, hanging out, and he's in a bathtub, his legs fully <laughs> submerged in ice water, yeah. and he's like, "I gotta go back and get it smoother tomorrow." And I'm like, "Yeah, holy shit, that's what BMX needs—a guy like that." Because there aren't too, there aren't too many people in BMX that are espousing that seriousness for the athleticism involved and the and the and the body, you know. So, like, kind of on that note, um, like you're a small business owner, I manage a small business, I. I'm not, where am I going with this? 
the you can draw a lot of metaphors with these sports to life. Some days are bad, some days are good, but a lot of your success is going to come down to how hard you're going to work, how hard you're going to work, or how smart you're going to work, and then like all the things you do in between, right? So like getting back to like sustainability, um, being able to focus on whatever your goal is, whether that's accomplishing a certain obstacle, learning a certain trick, whatever, you got to work at it. Like you got to take ownership for that in order to progress. I will say one last thing on the health related thing. Yeah. Staunchly diet over everything. There are plenty of people that are physically active and they are not fit. It diet is the most important thing. I have a whole other podcast. I don't do my wrench life podcast anymore because blaze left and I haven't really thought of a new format, but I do a whole, there's a whole thing about macro nutrition. whole thing about micronutrition. It's like mental health too. So there's some of that mixed in there. But, like, diet is the core of everything. You could be healthy, healthy lifestyle, but if you're shoveling garbage in your face, if you're not giving yourself the, you know, the vitamins you need, the protein you need, you're not going to recover. You're going to feel like crap. You're going to be in a constant state of inflammation. Like, my diet has slid in this corona crap because I've been like, oh, whatever, I'm just going to eat some Oreos. And it's not even bad. I'm sure my diet sliding is still nowhere near as bad as most people's. But I still... But I was just like, yo, why do I feel like crap? I'm like, why am I waking up groggy? Why is my muscle recovery like crap after my run? And I think back, I'm like, this is how I used to feel. And I'm like, oh, yeah, because I used to eat not as good. Yeah, well said. Like, the moral of the story, like, a lot of diet can be summed up with, like, yes, in and out, right? But also, like, eat real food. Eat, like, mm -hmm. you know, good quality meat, veggies, fruit, have balance. Like, if you're slamming $5 Little Caesars Hot and Ready's to the face and then eating or then, you know, drinking a six or a Jenny cream ale every night, even if you're burning a lot of calories, your body's not going to be getting yeah. that good nutrition it needs to sustain performance. The the refined carbohydrates and the processed sugar is just yeah. like, it, it's hell on your body. And it's absolutely hell. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, that could probably be a whole other podcast. Like, that is like a staple of <laughs> American diet. And I'm not going to, like, I'm a hypocrite too. Like, people that know me, they know how much I love pizza and I love ball candy from Wegmans. Real talk, malted milk balls. I uh, that whole assortment. I'm from Ooh. Jersey, so I love Ooh. pizza. And this past it. year, I, I basically, I eat pizza occasionally, but yeah. like I pretty much was like, I'm done with it. And it was hard. Honestly, my, my, uh, my taco and burrito intake went way up when my pizza intake went down. Yeah, that's but a good coefficient to be on. No, not hating against pizza, but like... For, it, yeah, for know, me, yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the refined carbohydrates. Yeah. They seem to have a, a, an inflammatory effect. And when I go beyond a threshold, like I said, I, like, let me step back. I still drink, and I used to drink. I used to be bad with drinking, but I still drink. And I thought I always woke up feeling like crap because I drank so much. But it turns out, for me, not for everyone, for because everyone's body is different. Right, right, but right, right. When I cut back on the sugar, when I cut sugar out of my diet, cut all those refined carbohydrates out of my diet, I wake up alert and awake. Like I get up and I'm ready to just go. There's no like groggy waiting for my coffee thing. It's just, and it it turns out it's it was the sugar and the refined carbohydrates. And now that in the past, you know, two weeks, I've been home more and I've been you know, like, oh, whatever. I'm, but, you know, you feel bad. And so you're like, oh, I'm going to yep. have some Oreos or whatever. And then I'm like, what? can't deny the data, the, the data. Yep. I feel like I used to feel because I'm starting to eat like I used to eat. So yep. I cut that out. I'm done with it again. Sugar's rough, man. Like I don't, I, somebody can use the Google machine to find it. But I remember there was some uh, doctor years ago that like related 
um, addiction to sugar, like, more so than, like, crack cocaine or something. I know I felt that. I got a bad sweet tooth, and, like, literally in the last month and a half, I've made a point to try and cut out sugar, or reduce, I shouldn't say cut out, but reduce a lot of my processed sugar, and, like, I dropped, like, five pounds well, in a week. give you an idea of what's yeah. happening, uh, how it's a chronic problem, you can process sugar the same way you process alcohol. There's only about so much you could handle before mm-hmm. you start to get drunk, right? Right. If you have less than one drink an hour, you're going to be kind of fine, right? So it looks like most people can process about 20 grams of sugar at a time per eating event, right? That's about what your stomach can process, right? So th- that sugar is never supposed to really make it into your small intestine. It's supposed to be processed, broken down into the, the correct form for your stomach, for your lower digestional tract to do what it needs to do. When you're beyond that threshold, Basically, you can't process it. It gets through. When it gets into your gut, it's not supposed to be there. Yep. Your gut, the, li- the lining of your gut works like a lock and key. So you basically, your, your pancreas secretes this crap. It takes the stuff. It processes it down. It puts it into the lower system in, in, the, in the units it needs to use to, you know, it, to use it, you know? Yep. Uh, when you inundate it, the sugar gets into your lower intestine. You get what we call leaky gut. The sugar will get through the, through the intestinal wall, and it'll spike your blood sugar, like, dramatically. Then that gets to the blood-brain barrier, causing slow, low-grade chronic inflammation in the brain, which can cause God knows what. All this autoimmune stuff, all the mental health stuff. Yep. It could be really as simple as, you know, just 10 grams less sugar per eating event, and maybe, you know, you're going to slowly recover. But And, like, and like bringing things full circle to, like, uh, a couple of the points you, you brought up, part one and part two of, like, today's podcast, like, there's a lot people can do to improve their mental health with diet exercise meditation yep you know not to mitigate hand in hand yeah and not to mitigate people that might have more significant situations but uh those three things can help a lot of people yeah we kind of went way off on a tangent yeah we did um, it was groovy but yeah so i think uh are we back to you in terms of talking about no what are we where are we at let's just touch on a couple differences between bmx and mountain bike culture yep very good very good um, all right, a couple differences. Um, all right, I'll go one. I'll put a few points. You throw some points, and then you go for one. So I would argue I think there's camaraderie in both. I think, though, with mountain biking, and, and I'm basing this on my experience, I feel like with mountain biking, yes, there is a little bit of segregation within the communities in terms of, like, um, cross-country riders, cross-bikes, downhill guys and gals and dirt jumpers but i would argue there's an overall culture of like embracing one another like sort of this sisterhood or brotherhood with mountain biking like in my experience riding lift parks on the northeast whether that's highland killington thunder mountain whatever you roll up in the parking lot regardless of age ethnicity what kind of car you're driving you like roll up see somebody nearby and just be like hey what's up man what's up gal and like you can break bread so easy with mountain biking you know like after the ride, have a beer, sit around the campfire. It's like a very cool social blend. I feel like that's not always the case with BMX. I feel like with BMX, in some instances, it's a little harder to just have an open camaraderie. Thoughts on that? Uh, that's actually what I was going to say, that BMX has this interesting dichotomy where it's like very inclusive to a point, right. and then in the upper echelon, it's very exclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the inclusivity that exists in the casual bmx rider like the people that would come to the skate park and just ride and they're not really concerned about a future in the cool guy grouping of bmx and, and getting sponsored any of that nonsense right right you show up to the park and you're cruising they're just you're just people just pumped on you yeah 
Uh, the difference I was to say is that there's a, and maybe this does exist in the competitive sides of mountain biking, but basically if, if someone's trying to be like the BMX dude, like, you know, they're buddy buddy with this guy because he knows that person right. and they're just trying to live the life, it gets very exclusive, right? very exclusive. Like they're like, there's some people and they just, a lot of people just can't take criticism they can't because they're just in their cool guy group and they can't be bothered and you know i'm only a street rider i'm not gonna pay to ride i don't want to wear a helmet you know it's kind of like that vein of anti-authority you'll see in skateboarding culture but it's more of like a in skating it seems to be more like anti-authority in bmx it seems to be more like elitist I could see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, don't get, and like, like you touched on too, Dave, like, there's definitely like, you go to, um, you know, you get even within mountain biking, like, I only ride park, you know, those are the cats that are like only going to take the, the chairlift up to the top versus the folks that are going to like earn their downhill or whatever. But like, I do feel by and large, in my experience being in the culture for like nearly a decade, most mountain bikers, you roll up to a campsite and it's so easy to break bread with people, yeah. regardless of like face value differences. I feel like the um, BMX is more hierarchical. Mm-hmm. B- mountain biking seems like, oh, cool, you're here, you're in. Uh, totally. Also, um, I, I learned motorcycle culture is kind of like that. It's just like, oh, you got a bike? I got a bike? Cool. Yeah. In BMX, there's like this, like, if you're good, like, if you're if someone's better than you, you're like, oh, I'm cool with you. But if someone's, like, worse than you, you could be like, eh, well, you know, we're, yeah. we're going to go ride this spot. One thing, like, um, a lot with downhill, not not downhill, um, but like with riding park with mountain bikes. Like I know I've been in different situations. By park, you mean bike park, not skate park? Okay. By bike park, cool. yeah. So speaking with mountain biking, like, you know, you go to a place like Highland. I've rode with so many people that are way better than me. And like you roll up to a trail and like I've had people, like even local guys, like shout out Ricky Stat or Sean Danick, two really good dudes. They've towed me into so many features I would not have hit on my mm-hmm. own, but they knew me enough where they knew like my baseline skill to like, Hey, Wolfman, follow us. Like, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll put you up on our level. And, like, I think that's so dope. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do feel like I see a lot of that locally in Rochester, and I see a lot of that with, with mountain bikers in general. There's a cool thing that happens with bikers as they get older where, like, the bubble gets popped. Like, they get a real job. They do this and that. And then a lot of them never come back. But some of them come back. And then they come back, and they're cooler than when they left because mm-hmm. they're no longer in the – high school the mentality of who's cool and who's got that and are you acting the part they're like they disappear for a while you'll see this in skateboarding as well like maybe they have a kid yeah they don't get to skate for like nine months right then all of a sudden they come back and they're like just so pumped to skate again or ride again and they and they're like you know it doesn't really matter who rides for this company and who did the who's the first one to land that or if that person it's like no i just want to ride my skateboard or my bike and have fun and those dudes are always the best because like it's like life just humbled the crap out of them, and then they come back and they're like, oh, cool. Yep. But and for every one of those, there's the opposite one where, you know. Yeah, and you're always going to have that. Like, I know, like, in the days of motocross, like, the, the dichotomy between motocross riders and guys or gals who raced hair scrambles, like the woods rider, that was its whole thing, too, because, like, you'd get, and again, I'm speaking general, there's a lot of awesome people in motocross, but you'd get some of that prima donna, like, just different clicks with who's sponsored, who's doing what, who performs better, whereas, like, the hair scrambles, everybody's going through hell with these endurance races, and it was just, like, this really cool brotherhood or sisterhood of, like, hey, uh, did you make it through the race? Oh, you did? Awesome. Like, high five, here's a beer. Like, don't give a shit what, what you finished, whether it was last or, or top ten. Like, you're out there, you're... you're comp- 
you're competing with one another, but you're getting through that pain together. Yeah. yeah. I would just say um, from a higher altitude, it's basically all just the fact that we're just innately tribal people. Sure. H sorry, humans are very tribal. Right. Uh, so everyone's going to tend to go into groups and like this and dislike the opposite thing. It just seems like the you know, uh, the powers that be or the, the influencers in the sport seem to, you know, either inflame or suppress how tribal those things can get. And in BMX, in a lot of cases, it really makes the in-group strong, which will push out the out-group. And in mountain biking, it is way more about everyone. So you don't get so much of that in-group, out-group nonsense. Yeah. And there's a fine line to like, kudos to the people that are excelling in a certain discipline and like you hope like to keep these cultures moving forward and keep them inclusive you know it's like if you're shredding and doing a really nice job with something it's like extend that olive branch and help out yeah. people that you know might not be on your level yeah i'm just gonna call it off here i don't want to go into the last section we've gone over an hour so oh, wow yeah it's an hour and 10 minutes so i think it's enough we could maybe another time jump in on the, the latter half of this but cool I mean, that was a lot of information. Uh, it'll be an experiment to see if people are going to digest Tune into it or this. not, yeah. I mean, if there's no point of it saying anything at the end because if you got to the end, you're already here. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> this might be more of the pod. We put this on the podcast platforms, yeah. but most of the co people that listen to it will watch it on YouTube. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah and, I mean, e and even Instagram too. Like, I think what's the what's the magic number? Like, even with Instagram TV, like two minutes or less for 10, ten, ten minutes. Okay. Yeah. So this will be really tough with that. But yeah. I might have to cut it up a little bit differently. We'll see. Yeah, yeah whatever. Well, some fun. I don't care. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's the that's it for today. Uh, cool. Hopefully, you made it to the end. If you did, you know, congratulations. You win a prize. I mean, I listen to ten-hour audiobooks all the time, so one-hour podcasts aren't that big a deal. This guy's a freak. If you don't know already, he listens to like audiobooks at two x speed while he's grinding gravel out it's in true. the nearest park. So I mean, impressive. I love three-hour podcasts, so Me this too. isn't that long. But shout out Joe Rogan. The demographic is really like fifteen-year-olds, so yeah. we'll see. Yeah. I mean, this one obviously has a more targeted audience. But anyway, yep, that's it. Uh, you know, this is breaking free speech. This, you know, you walk the walk, talk the talk. That's what we do. Uh, hopefully you're getting out there and shredding the gnar amidst all this crazy crap. Shredding the gnar. Hopefully you can shred some of the rails I put out. And, uh, you know, thanks for watching. Peace out. Later. Actually, I have that.